If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll be delving deep into the movie Forbidden Planet from 1956. Now this movie was a 1956 American science fiction movie produced by Nicholas Nafak, directed by Fred M. Wilcox, and it starred Walter Pidgeon, Anne Francis, and Leslie Nielsen. It was shot in East Man Color and Cinemascope. It is considered to be one of the greatest science fiction films of the 1950s. It was even a precursor to contemporary science fiction cinema, such as Star Trek, and the characters in isolated setting have been compared to those in William Shakespeare's The Tempest. And the plot certainly contains analogs to the play, leading many to consider it a loose adaptation. Sit back, relax, as we delve deep into this amazing film. Hello, I am your host, Randy Andrews, and I'd like to welcome you to this special revisit of Forbidden Planet. Now, many of you, if you've caught my podcast before, you may have noted that I have covered Forbidden Planet before. Last time, it was only 20 minutes long. This time, it's a bit longer I'd like to delve a little deeper into the cast, the background, the production, and of course, the soundtrack. So this film, as I brought out in my intro, was directed by Fred M. Wilcox. It was produced by Nicholas Nafak. The screenplay was by Cyril Hume. The story by Irving Block, Alan Adler, and it starred Walter Pidgeon and Francis, Leslie Nielsen, the robot Robbie. It was narrated by Les Tremaine, and the music was by Bebe and Louise Baron. The cinematography was by George J. Falsey, and it was edited by Ferris Webster. The production company, of course, was Metro Goldwyn Mayer. And the release date was March 3rd, 1956. 
The running time was 98 minutes. And of course, it was released in the U.S. And the budget was $1,968,003. And then the box office release was 2 million. Seven hundred sixty-five thousand. Isn't that amazing? That just such a little film that you would think didn't have any following reached so many people. It pioneered several aspects of science fiction cinema. It was the first science fiction film to depict humans traveling to a distant, faster-than-light area in a starship of their own creation. It was also the first to be set entirely on another planet in interstellar space, far away from Earth. Robbie the Robot is the first robot that makes appearance in a film. And the interesting thing is that he was more than just a tin can with legs. Robbie displayed a certain distinct personality and is an integral part of the supporting characters in the film. Now, outside science fiction, the film was groundbreaking as the first of any genre to use an entirely electronic musical score. Now, this was with courtesy from Bebe and Louise Baron. Forbidden Planet's effects team was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects at the 29th Academy Awards. In 2013, the picture was entered into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry, being deemed culturally, culturally, excuse me, culturally and historically or aesthetically significant. Tony Magistrate describes it as one of the best examples of early techno horror. Hmm. I never thought of this film as a horror flick. Here's the basic plot. Astronauts in the 23rd century are sent to the distant planet of Altair 4 to find out why a previous expedition has disappeared. Once there, they find the reclusive Professor Morbius played by Walter Pidgeon, living with his beautiful daughter, Altaria, and Francis, and an amazing robot named Robbie, who has a distinct personality and human traits. Morbius tells the astronauts that some unknown force killed the other settlers and shows them the vast underground city of the Krell, the long-dead natives of Altair IV, an invisible monster starts killing the astronauts, who discover that the monster is a projection of Morbius's subconscious, unleashed by his experiments with the mind-expanding machinery of the Krell. Now, let's hear about some of the production. The screenplay, as I've mentioned, is by Irving Block and Alan Adler, And it was written in 1952, and it originally was titled Fatal Planet. The later draft was renamed Forbidden Planet because it was believed to have greater box office appeal, which I think they could be correct in that. Now, 
The drama took place in the year 1976 on the planet Mercury. An Earth expedition headed by John Grant is sent to the planet to retrieve Dr. Adams and his daughter Doreen, who have been stranded there for 20 years. From then on, the plot roughly is the same as the completed film, though Grant is able to rescue both Adams and his daughter and escape the invisible monster stalking them. The film sets for Forbidden Planet were constructed on the soundstage at its Culver City film lot and were designed by Cedric Gibbons and Arthur Lonergan. The film was shot entirely indoors, with all the Altair 4 exterior scenes simulated using sets, visual effects, and matte paintings, which the matte paintings are just brilliant. A full-size mock-up of the three-quarters of the spaceship was built to suggest its full width of 170 feet. That's a big ship. The starship was surrounded by a huge painted cyclorama featuring the desert landscape of Altair IV, and this one set took up all the available space in one of the Culver City sound stages. The principal photography took place from April 18th to late 1955. Now many of the costume and prop items were reused in several different episodes, even of The Twilight Zone and of other areas, including Robbie the Robot, uh, even to a full-scale mock-up, even of the base of the ship, which is featured in the episode To Serve Man. The blaster pistols, rifles, crew uniforms, and even special effect shots. So at the cost of roughly $125,000, Robbie the Robot was very expensive for the film. And it represented almost 7% of the film's $1.9 million budget. That's really a lot. And both the electronically controlled passenger vehicle driven by Robbie and the truck tractor crane for the offloaded from the Starship were also constructed especially for the film. Robbie also starred in the science fiction film The Invisible Boy and later appeared in many TV series and films. Now, Robbie, uh, he even appeared in several episodes, of course, as I mentioned, of The Twilight Zone. And he's even appeared in Earth Girls Are Easy. Now, this is something that I really thought unique. The animated sequences for Forbidden Planet, especially the attack of the id monster, were created by the veteran animator Joshua Meader, who was loaned to MGM by Walt Disney Productions. According to the behind-the-scenes featurette on the film's DVD, a close look at the creature shows it to have a small goatee beard, suggesting its connection to Dr. Morbius, who is the only character with this physical feature. Unusually, the scene is which the id monster is finally revealed during its attack on the Earthship, is not created using traditional cell animation. Instead, Meader simply sketched each frame of the entire sequence in black pencil, and this is on animation stand translucent vellum paper 
Each page was then photographed in high contrast so that only the major details remained visible. These images were then photographically reversed into negative and the resulting white line images were then tinted red, creating the effect of the id monster's body remaining largely invisible, with only its major outlines illuminated by the energy from the force field and blaster beams. The reception for the film was in regard to how there was a world premiere at the Southeastern Science Fiction Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina on March 3rd and 4th of 1956, and it opened in more than 100 cities on March 23rd in Cinemascope, Eastman Color, and some theaters with stereophonic sound, either by the magnetic or perspecta processes. And I found that really cool. The film really received positive reviews from critics. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times wrote that everyone who worked on the film certainly had a barrel of fun with it. And if you've gotten an ounce of taste for crazy humor, you'll have a barrel of fun too. Now, Variety wrote, Imaginative gadgets galore, plus plenty of suspense and thrills. It makes the Nicholas Nafak production a top offering in the space travel category. And also, there was another man, Harrison's Reports. They called the film weird, but fascinating and exciting. And isn't that the case with speculative fiction? That it makes you think. It's a thinking piece. It's also... You know, looking at the world and trying to see the betterment of man. Now, John McCartan, he had called the film a pleasant spoof of all the moonstruck nonsense the movies have been dishing out about what goes on among our neighbors out there in interstellar space. And so, all these different reviews, sometimes they don't get it quite right. They don't quite understand the complexity of what the science fiction actually meant to the world of science fiction. Now, Forbidden Planet, it had been re-released later uh, to film theaters during 1972 as one of MGM's Kitty matinee features. And there was about six minutes of film footage that was cut to ensure the G rating. And it was later released even with the G rating, but it carried the original theatrical version. Now, the American Film Institute nominated the film for their top 10 science fiction films. And the score was nominated for the AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores, which is cool. As in the home media... Forbidden Planet was released in the pan and scan format in 1982, and this was on VHS and Betamax, and then later on Laserdisc and Videodisc, and then years later in 1996 reissued as a Laserdisc but also VHS, both with a 40th anniversary edition. But it was the Criterion Collection that later reissued Forbidden Planet in CinemaScope's original wider screen, a 2.55 to 1 aspect ratio, on a deluxe laser disc set, with various extra features on a second disc. 
Now, Warner Brothers next released a film on DVD in 1999, and that's where it stayed. It was not only on DVD, but it was re-released again on Blu-ray. And this is where I have to take a moment and really talk about the Blu-ray quality. The Blu-ray quality of the film really stands out as something to be amazed. Uh, I don't know what the original production looked like. Um, It may have been very loose on color, and the color may have not been visually as stunning. But the Blu-ray release, you get to see so much more of like the underground and the detail on the mechanics of the machines and the illusions and how real the world actually looked. So I can rant and rant about that and actually appreciate it. But despite all that, today we're also discussing how the film changed throughout the the years. Now, shortly before the film was released, as with a lot of films, they release a novel. And with this one, it was in hardcover and later in mass market paperback. It was written by W.J. Stewart. He was a mystery novelist, as under the Philip McDonald name, and it chapters the novels which separate it into first-person narratives. Which is interesting because Dr. Ostrow, Commander Adams, and Dr. Morbius. It delves further into the mysteries of the vanished Krell and Morbius' relationship to them. In the novel, he repeatedly exposes himself to the Krell's manifestation machine, which boosts his brain power far beyond normal human intelligence. Unfortunately, he isn't man enough, I guess, to retain enough of his imperfect human nature to be afflicted with hubris and a contempt for humanity. Not recognizing his own base primitive drives and limitations proves to be Morbius's downfall. So while not stated explicitly in the film, although the basis for the deleted scene on the Criterion Collection shows that, the novelization compared Altera's ability to tame the tiger until her sexual awakening with Commander Adams to the medieval myth of a unicorn being tamed only by a virgin. So the novel also includes an element never included in the film when Dr. Ostrow dissects one of the Earth-type animals. He discovers that its internal structure precludes it from ever being alive in the normal biological sense. The tiger, deer, and even monkey are all conscious creatures by Dr. Morbius using the great machine as companions for his daughter and only outward resemble their Earth counterparts. Since the Krell's great machine can project matter in any form, it has the power to create life. Thus, the Krell's self-destruction can be interpreted by the reader as a cosmic punishment for misappropriating the life-creating power of the universe. This is why Commander Adams says in his speech to Altera, We are, after all, not God. Now the soundtrack. This is why we're here. 
Forbidden Planet's innovative electronic musical score, the music is credited as electronic tonalities, partly to avoid having to pay any of the film industry music guild fees, and it was composed by Bebe and Louise Barron, and MGM producer Dor Scarry discovered the couple quite by chance at the Beatneck nightclub in Greenwich Village while on a family Christmas visit to New York City. Scarry hired them on the spot to compose his film's musical score, while the theremin, the theremin used such as in Star Trek, it wasn't used in Forbidden Planet, but it was used during Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound uh, film, and the Baron's electronic composition is credited with being credited with being the first completely electronic film score. Their soundtrack preceded the invention of the Moog synthesizer by eight years. So it was so innovative. It used ideas and procedures from the book Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine by the mathematician and electrical engineer Norbert Weiner and Louise Barron constructed his own electronic circuits that he used to generate the scores bleeps, blurps, whirs, whines, throbs, hums, and screeches. Most of these sounds were generated using an electronic circuit called a ring modulator. After recording the basic sounds, the Barons further manipulated the sounds by adding other effects, such as reverberation and delay, and reversing or changing the speeds of certain sounds. Just saying, the score was so unique. It even realmed in the categories of sound effects not necessarily a soundtrack. And MGM declined to publish a soundtrack album at the time that Forbidden Planet was released. So it took a while for the score to actually be released. And the film's original theatrical trailer contains snippets of David Rose's score, the tapes of which Rose reportedly later destroyed. Which I'm sure it's possible that it might still be attainable. The Barons finally released their score in 1976 as an LP album for the film's 20th anniversary. It was their very own Planet Records label, later changed to Small Planet Records, distributed by GNP Crescendo Records. It was premiered at the Mid-American Con, the 34th World Science Fiction Convention, and this is interesting, it was held in Kansas City, Missouri over the 1976 Labor Day weekend as part of that 20th anniversary celebration. The Barons also introduced the first three packed house screenings that showed the MGM 35mm fine grain vault print in original cinemascope and stereophonic sound. A decade later, in 1986, their soundtrack was released on a music CD for the film's 30th anniversary. A tribute to the film's soundtrack was performed live in concert by Jack Dangers, available on disc one of the album Forbidden Planet Explored. So you might try to find that. Many of the costumes, they weren't by any means elaborate, 
but the costumes worn by Anne Francis were designed by Helen Rose. Her miniskirts resulted in Forbidden Planet being banned in Spain, and it was not shown there until 1967. The other costumes were designed by Walter Plunkett. Now, Robbie the Robot was operated by a diminutive stuntman, Frankie Darrow. He was fired shortly after an early scene began, having had a five-martini lunch prior to the scene being shot. He nearly fell over while trying to walk inside the expensive prop. So they got another actor. And Walter Pigeon, he had his Morbius costume with an illuminating blaster rifle, blaster pistol, a force field generator post, and an original Sasha Brostoff steel prehistoric fish sculpture seen outside Morbius's home. And many of this is really unique because some of the molds, uh, in fact, the mold that the crew took of the invisible monster, the id monster, was in fact reused in another film. It was used in Planet of the Apes. And if you look for it, it's an Easter egg. So in popular culture, with Forbidden Planet being such a name for itself, even in the opening of the film, the narrator mentions that humanity landed on the moon for the first time in the last decade of the 21st century. That pr prediction proved incorrect when humanity first landed on the moon in 1969. The narrator also mentions that all of the solar system's planets were visited by 2200 AD, and then faster-than-light drive was invented shortly afterward. There was an Australian radio adaption used uh, with the original electronic music, and it supported local actors to broadcast in 1959. The Stephen King's Tommyknockers. It presents the Altair Four as a reference to a home planet of the titular alien presence, which is kind of interesting. And, of course, the biggest influence that this film ever made was Star Trek, with the creator being Gene Roddenberry, and he notes it as one of his inspirations. Now, Forbidden Planet was also used with Doctor Who uh, in the Planet of Evil, which was consciously based on that film. Now, also, there was a British musical called Return to the Forbidden Planet, and it was not very well received. There was even references from Babylon 5, The Time Tunnel, The Outer Limits. Um, there was a short story anthology based on the film in 2006 called Forbidden Planets. You may want to look that up. Uh, I hear it's fairly good. Uh, Fallout New Vegas. That was a video game. It had reference to Morbius and Robbie the Robot. And then the first Mass Effect game, uh, it had reference to the Monster of Id. And then, of course, George R.R. R. Martin. He cites Forbidden Planet as one of his favorite science fiction films and owns a working replica of Robbie the Robot, which is cool. And then also in Firefly, 
the Serenity movie, one of the vehicles they examine on the planet Miranda has a C-57D stenciled on its side, which is the identity mark for the starship in Forbidden Planet. And at this point in modern society, we can see there's no longer true scoring for Forbidden Planet. They use the circuits for particular themes and layered motifs, rather than using standard sound generators. Each circuit is made up of a certain voice, so to speak. Most remarkable is that the sound which emanate from these electronic nervous systems seem to convey strong emotions, meaning to the listeners. And I just, I could go on and on about this film because it's just so innovative. It's so unique. I gotta go back to talking about Star Trek because Warren Stevens, who plays Doc on the film, he would later guest star in a Star Trek episode uh, by any other name, where the true shape of the aliens' Calvins are like the Krell in the movie. Uh, it was implied to be extremely non-humanoid, but never shown. The 1701, which is the serial number of the Starship Enterprise, allegedly comes from the clock mark 1701 when the C-57D enters orbit around Altair 4. It's just kind of a cool piece of history. Now the score, of course, as was completed by MGM. And since no scene occurs in the film to where there's uh, Robbie the Robot picking up the girl and carrying her, uh, it's slightly different in the film. He actually is carrying one of the crew members that actually is dead. But I found this film really enjoyable. I love the characters, the otherworldly elements of it, how on Blu-ray the city beneath is so much larger and richer uh, than the old version of the DVD. And so today, the first piece of music that I'd like to play for you is the main title. It's short, but definitely eerie, and even unique to any other kind of film music that you probably heard in the past. I hope you enjoy it.
The next piece I'd like to play is called Love at the Swimming Hole for the producers of the film. Back in the 50s, they still wanted to make a romance blossom thoroughly. Now, with the scene in the movie, it's actually very risque for the time. And you'll have to watch it sometime to see what I mean. So here's that piece. Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. The last piece I'd like to play for you today is called The Monster Pursues and Morpheus is Overwhelmed. The music really gives us the feeling of an angry man who can't control his monster because he created it in his mind. You can follow my website through SoundtrackAlley.com, email me 
at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. Find me through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Find the podcast through Anchor.fm, Breaker, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Overcast. And so, until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you're on iTunes, please rate and review the show. It really helps Soundtrack Alley Spotlight get noticed. Thanks.